We've got one word for this week's podcast. Yes, this week it's back to the 1970s, the favorite decade for one of us. Uh, this is the Fright Club podcast. I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf, and we're from madwolf.com. And it's all about our favorite horror movies from the 1970s this week, because, of course, last week we started with the 60s. Yeah, and we got, thank you, we got a lot of feedback about that one. And uh, as... Uh, Some not so happy. Yeah, which is okay. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. We, we wanted to hear about that as well. And actually, there's just the, in particular... We heard several people were a little irritated, like at one West Indian who is who is mad that we sort of disregarded the Hammer, the entire Hammer franchise. And in particular, which we mentioned that uh, during the 60s is when they introduced the Christopher Lee Dracula's. And he was a great Dracula. And especially that first film, their first one was it was it was a really good movie. I can't I still can't put it in the top 5 all-time best of the 60s, but we understand I mean we yeah. expect it. Yeah. So thank you. Yes, by the way, thank, thank you. you. Thank we you. hope to get more of the same this week because Oh, I think we will. This week it's back to the 1970s. I love everything. I I grew up in the 70s. I'm a 70s kid. You're you're an 80s kid. So we argue about that just as we argue about the top movie in this uh yeah. in this countdown yeah but. there was a, there was a, a little disgruntledness about what we gave the number one although i think most of the world is going to side with you but regardless of all the other great things about the 70s it was a great decade for films and horror films oh in general. my god it was for my money the best decade ever for horror movies ever it was it was such a blossoming for horror movies and one of the reasons that it was so great the the directors the horror directors who re, the maverick horror directors who really made uh, their presence known in the seventies John Carpenter David Cronenberg Toby Hooper Wes Craven Dario Argento some of the all time greatest they started and you know and really made their mark during the seventies speaking of Cronenberg who as you know I adore mm-hmm. I love David Cronenberg. <laughs> So if you want to give us, you know, take a chance, hop on over to um, ScreenRelish.com. George and I both write for ScreenRelish.com as well. And I do, they do something every Saturday called the Saturday Screamer, which is super fun. It just, they recommend a a horror movie for you to check out. And I, uh, the one I did for this week is The Brood, the Cronenberg movie that I love so much, The Brood. I think um, one of the reasons why we may get some blowback on this particular countdown, and keep in mind, we're only doing five movies, is that... We are skipping so many. Yeah, there's a lot. We're skipping so many. And the thing is, basically, one through four, foregone conclusion. Pretty Number much. five could have been one of a thousand movies. Yeah, you probably have a good idea what one through four are going to be. Maybe not in the correct order, but number five is one that maybe a lot of people haven't really heard of. Well, and not only that, I mean, there were just so many options. There were so many yeah. options. There were so many that we didn't didn't uh, include. And we got a lot of thank you for that, too. A lot of people kind of chimed in with what they thought we might want to uh, add, what would be in their tops. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple that people, few people were going were gonna to upset, uh, like Chase TX, because... Both of them, he, he nominated two. A lot of people, not both of these two. I'm going to bring him up because a lot of people nominated both of these two films. And one of them is Alien, which we're both going to say, masterpiece. Yes, love it. As is Jaws. Jaws. Oh. And both of them are landmark horror movies, but the reason they didn't make them, they're really not discreetly horror movies. Right. They're not. Many horrific elements in them, yes. and they are fantastic movies. Don't get us wrong. But when we decided to really sort of narrow down, we're sticking with specifically genre efforts. Mm-hmm. These are all horror movies. And uh, and another one, actually, a friend of ours, Corey Metcalf, who does uh, another, he does other podcasts on Golden Spiral Media with us, the Triple Cast. Um, he does that, for example. 
He voted for Halloween. That was popular. That got a lot of votes. That was a popular one for this. So, <laughs> hint, you know, hint. hint, hint. So anyway, let's let's jump in. Yeah, this is one not as mainstream as numbers one through four. It's Nosferatu the Vampire. Der Fluch wird auf den Menschen lasten. Der Fluch des Vampirs Nosferatu. So this one's from 1979. Werner Herzog, the director. One of the reasons why it made it, actually, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I love Werner Herzog. Yeah, he's he's so great. And any time one of the all-time great directors does a horror movie, you, I think, have to pay attention. He does something brilliant. And this is, a, is Dracula, although he doesn't go specifically Dracula. What he does, and one of the reasons I love it so much, is because it's combined with uh, Murnau's Nosferatu, the Max Schreck masterpiece, which is one of maybe quite possibly the best vampire movie ever made. So while it's the Dracula storyline and he uses, he doesn't call the vampire Orlock, he calls him Dracula. The look that he gives, and it's Klaus Kinski, effortlessly, effortlessly weird, Klaus Kinski, <laughs> but he looks like the Max Shrek. So he, he, he looks does, like yeah. a rat. Like he's an got, alien. Like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. He's got the, you know, the dark circles. He's bald, bald pointy, pointy ears. ears yeah. his, his front teeth. He's very rat-like. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that that works so well in this movie is that while most Dracula Dracula tales, it's a very sexual kind of a thing, often a homoerotic kind of a, kind much, of a, a paranoia. Yeah. That's not what they do. It's this was a German film, and it is absolutely uh, parallel with the Black Plague. So to have him be rat-like and completely asexual works really well in this. But one of the other reasons that it works so well, it's this surreal, dreamy quality that the whole movie has. Right. It's so macabre and creepy. And- Which you could kind of tell from that little clip we played with the music. Uh, you know, a foreign film and then the way the music is also very dreamlike and orchestral. And it all feeds that same at- atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, that's a great word for it. It's incredibly atmospheric. The whole movie, it's like you're in this nightmare that you can't wake up from. And he does a couple, he does enough things to tweak the sort of tired Dracula storyline to keep you interested. And one of the things I love about it is that um, Lucy, Isabella Ajani, Lucy, gets to be the hero in this one, which is a nice change of pace. She's not just the lovely woman waiting for a man to save her. Right. And also, though, that her beloved Jonathan Harker, there's a nice, if you're not familiar with this one, I don't really, but I mean, they do some interesting, ugly twists that really make this a horror movie. And it, but, and it's just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So, you know, it, it's, I kind of feel like this was the most coveted spot, number five, because there were hundreds, <laughs> Could have been anything. hundreds yeah. of options for that. And we went with uh, Nosferatu the Vampire. And one of the, one of the cool things of the backstory about this is Klaus Kinski, as you said, effortlessly weird, the star and the director, Werner Herzog. If, if you believe legend, they just violently hate each other. And that's got to uh, turn into quite a dynamic on the set. Because they made several films together. And yeah, as rumor has it, I mean, violently is the word for it. They would like throw things at each other. They would erupt into fisticuffs. They yeah. hated each other. But it worked. Yeah. And I think part of it is, I think Werner Herzog is, is an odd person, an odd bird. But I think Klaus Kinski, from everything I've ever read of him, is as weird in reality as he ever was in any movie, which is weird. Yeah. So that, you know, and uh, I think that you can, you can sort of see it. There are so many great versions of this. Another great one, Shadow of the Vampire, from a few, from yeah. uh, maybe 2000 or Willem so Defoe. yeah that's yeah. a great one mm-hmm. i mean there are so many great versions with this particular rat-like version of the vampire but this is just a hypnotic lovely yeah creepy version so check it out if you haven't from 79 nosferatu the vampire now we get into the heavy hitters right and number four maybe a little low for some people's uh, expectations it's 
Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. This one came out in 1978, so I was 14, 13, 14 years old, and I remember my friends, we, we snuck in. I mean, the theater where I grew up, they weren't really checking IDs, <laughs> so we went in to see it in the theater, and just, yeah, we were freaked, because there were so many things about this movie that started waves, started, uh, you know, copycat movies, and so many of these elements, even if they weren't new, we wouldn't have seen them before, right. my friends and I. But it just, just blew our minds. And uh, it, it started, obviously, it started the wave of the teen slasher right, movies. After right. this, the, these sort of elements have now become parody. And you right. see them in comedy skits, in those god-awful, scary movie right, movies, right, right. things like that. But back then, put yourself, back then when it came out, it was all new. It was all terrifying. And you, you bring up a great point, because you know more about like, the history of horror movies than I do. This was the first movie, really, to bring the terror to the suburbs yeah, in America. absolutely. And I think that, that there are a lot of elements that made the movie so effective when it first came out, but I think that might be the one that shocked people the most. People were so, like, you know, you didn't have to go, you know, backpacking. You didn't have to go out in the woods. You didn't have to go someplace creepy where you ask yourself, what am I doing here? Look what's going to happen. You know, it's just going to come right knocking on your door with the trick-or-treaters. And it's, it's just done so well. Haddonfield, just this lovely little yeah. suburb, and, you know... It is, but it it freaked out, you know, kids of our age, the age that I was at the time, and and even adults back then, and even today, uh, people that saw it back then, it was scarring. Yeah, a a good, a good, good friend of ours, Celinda, she saw it when she was young as well. She saw it in the theater, and it scarred, it scared her so badly. She will not call my phone. Uh, I have the the ringtone is right. is and the ring back as well is the the theme from Halloween. She'll only text me. She will not call. And you know, I think that if you're young and you watch it today, like oh, I got to watch the classics. I'm going to watch the movie Halloween. It's not going to come off because yeah. every movie since then has borrowed something. But you know, it had the you know the just the boogeyman character, the faceless, speechless, unstoppable boogeyman character that that every slasher has has drawn oh, from. Oh, he had a face. <laughs> William Shatner's face. That, that's such a great little tidbit from this movie. That, that, that was is. a William Shatner, Captain Kirk mask. Oh, that's yeah. just so great. And you talk, go back to your ringtone, because the music in this oh, my. is so effective. And and the, the legend goes, of course, John Carpenter not only composed it, but performed it. And we mm-hmm. talked a couple of weeks ago about he has an album out right, right now right. of themes, which is very cool. But um, he just kind of threw it together just because he needed some music, needed something in there. And it works so well. That yeah, what well, yeah, uh, legend has it that he showed a cut of the film without music to producers, and they hated it. They hated the film, so he just threw together really quickly, just on a piano, something, and and immediately classic. It's <laughs> as creepy as it could possibly be. So then they never uh, embellished. They didn't make it like uh, the score, which is you know one of the most effective elements of the movie is that spare creepy score, a score I obviously love, yep. and it it. It created a couple of things, you know, at the very end. I know it worked for me and my friends and I when we saw it. The fact that Michael Myers is, is not there. Right. He's dead. He's dead. Oh, and they look back. He's gone. He's gone. And that, now that's such an overused it is. crutch. But back then it seemed so, I, I'm not sure it was the first movie ever to use it, 
But it sure seemed like it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and of and course, then the idea of The Last Girl. The Last Girl, yeah. Which I'm sure films had done before, but never in a way. It became the iconic Last Girl. Jamie Lee Curtis became the iconic Last Girl. And she's and, very good. Oh, she's. that's another thing, I think, that separates Halloween from other uh, films of the pack. Jamie Lee Curtis is very talented. She's talented in this, in this role. And The Last Girl evolved over the years to be sort of a, you know, vacuous, beautiful why is she being so stupid? But that's really not Jamie Lee Curtis no. in this. I mean, no, no, no. she comes off as, what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. And she's trying really hard to figure it out. And she's trying to survive. And I mean, she, think and yeah, yeah, think. survive on her feet. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah exactly. And of course, she became, she personally became Last Girl in, you know, yeah. Halloween 2 and Prom Night and yeah. Terror Train. I mean, that became her role for the longest time. But yeah, we, she, have, we have to talk about that one time because... I think Terror Train is underrated. Uh, I the, do not. Oh, was that okay? <laughs> Maybe I need to watch it again. But that's one that Terror Train because Prom Night is awful. But Terror Train, I come, I seem to remember had a few redeeming qualities, but it doesn't nowhere near this list. So no. I, I digress. But the other thing about this movie, as minimalistic as it is, not only the music, but it seems very you know the budget. Oh, sure. Donald Pleasance, <laughs> you know how and he was an esteemed actor. You know how did they get Donald Pleasance? I don't know. Uh, I love him, movie. though. And he almost seems it works for the it works for the character because in so many scenes in the movie, he almost seems like disgusted. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know? But it works. It does. Because he's so exasperated with everybody because they won't take him seriously about how dangerous <laughs> Michael Myers is. But he just seems like, what What are you doing? I'm Donald Pleasant. Why am I here? <laughs> but but it works. And so many things about the movie and is still so incredibly classic yeah. today. And it's a nice uh, kind of a time capsule. Uh, in, of life in the suburbs uh, in in 1978, and it was it was scary. And oh, it was. To some people who don't like your ringtone, it still is. <laughs> so our our next one is one where we feel like so these two we just we went back and forth. Which is four? Which is three? Which is four? Which is three? We wound up making the next one number three because the performances are simply amazing. So our number three is Carrie. Carrie White, the girl no one likes. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. And we have to make mention of of a, a negative thread that these two films have in common, and that is PJ Souls. <laughs> George know? is not a fan of PJ Souls. Fan <laughs> of PJ in stripes, okay. <laughs> but she's so annoying, especially in Carrie when she wears that damn hat. <laughs> she even wears it to the prom. Can you imagine? You pick up to pick, you show up to pick her up. She comes wearing that hat with the lightning stripes on it. <laughs> like, did she take that hat into the dress store? I need a prom dress to go with this hat. <laughs> Uh, I could, okay, enough about PJ Souls. This is a great movie, and the performances are great, as you say, and it's got to start right at the top with Piper Laurie as, oh, yeah. as Carrie's mother, who's just batshit insane. Oh, my God, she and is. And you believe every second she's a nut. You yeah. just believe it. Not only that, I think one of the reasons that, that, that Sissy Spacex performance works as well as it does is because you buy that being this woman's daughter would make you... That woe be gone. Yeah. That 
you know, just a, a, an outcast, that much of one. You'd have no idea how to behave normally because this is what you get when you go home. Um, it's both of them are ju- and both of them were Oscar nominated. Yeah. Both of them are just magnificent in this movie. Weird enough to for it to be really a horror movie, but authentic enough that you don't feel like it's just this over-the-top nuttiness. They are great. Sissy Spacek is so wonderful in this movie. She's so tender. And and one of the things about the film for me is that it is the pinnacle of mean girl cinema. Oh, yeah. No one's ever done it as well as that locker room plug-it-up scene. No one's ever done it that well. Well, the locker room in, in Born Innocent is is pretty mean, too, yeah. but let's, let's not <laughs> discuss that. Um... <laughs> But one of the things you were telling me, uh, a, a very cool anecdote about when they were auditioning for this movie, uh, Brian De Palma. Yeah, Brian De Palma and George Lucas were good friends, and they both auditioned simultaneously for Carrie and Star Wars. So everybody who auditioned was auditioning for both both films. Like John Travolta was also auditioning for Star Wars. Amy Irving was also auditioning for Star Wars. And apparently, allegedly, she almost got the Princess Leia role, but she wound up getting uh, Sue Snell, which, you know, uh, it's a great role, mm-hmm. and she wound up, it didn't really hurt her career, because what does it matter? She married Steven Spielberg and doesn't ever need to work again. So um, And divorced him. That's right. <laughs> so that's why she doesn't that's need to work yeah, That's where the real payday came Cha-ching. in. But, uh, yeah, now, Brian De Palma, truth be told, is not one of our favorite directors. No, and I know that that's not going to go over that well with a lot of horror fans, because he does have quite, quite... Uh, a canon, and a lot of people are very big fans of his. Personally, um, and it's the same reason why I'm not a huge fan of Dario Argento, I can't enjoy watching movies where the violence is as sexual as it is in most of the De Palma films because that really is a male fantasy. It is not a female fantasy, right. and as a female, I can't really get behind it. Yeah, well, the entire movie, Body Double, is just oh, a, yeah. a male fantasy for sure. Oh, my God, And, yes. and those... So it's, Although it's, it's when a the, point well the, taken. the drilled, yeah, there there are a couple scenes in Body Double I like. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but this movie works on many levels uh, with with Brian Duvall. He did many things right oh, in this movie. Oh, so well. And let's starting with streamlining the ending. That's from, right. Because he, he adapted the screenplay, and um, and, and of course, Carrie was Stephen King's first full length novel, and it's a great book. It really is. But the and forgive me, King. I'm going to just get crucified by everybody, but me, King fans are probably going to shoot me. It's a better movie than a book. And part of the reason is that Stephen King doesn't end very well. A lot of times just, he, he doesn't. He just doesn't. Yeah. And he doesn't end this novel very well. It's sprawling. You know, Carrie walks from the prom over to the bar. Over, She's just walking all over town and carnage follows. What, what, uh, De Palma did was streamline that. So it's, you know, she, she takes care of everybody at the prom except the main problem and then she just walks on home and mm-hmm. it's 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 so much more effective in that way um it's so just closed in and you just pared away all the extraneous stuff that you don't really need and then that image of her walking all bloody down the street toward her house just yeah. magnificent and then of course that final that fi- final hand up through the grave oh my on god the yeah but, but you know streamlining the end of, that's not it's not like this is the only movie that does that. You think of something like Jaws. Yeah. The, the ending of the Jaws book was boring. Yeah. Just boring. And they turned it into such a fantastic ending. Oh, my God, you know, yeah. Just, of course, unbelievable and, and way over the top, but it works yeah. so well. So this is along the lines of that. A book and a movie are two different animals. Yes, they are. And the, it, it, it was very different. Uh, it, it required a different type of ending, and they got one. Like you say, it's streamlined like, like this. But, and, you know, and it wasn't just the writing and it wasn't just the performances. One of the things that I think he does really well, you know, for, for, the, for a very long time, 
the whole film has this cheesecloth look about it and this like, you know, pleasant background music. It's got kind of a tampon ad feel about it, appropriately <laughs> enough. And yeah. for the longest time, if you don't really know what you're watching, it's it's you're rooting for her. In one of these, you know, sort of makeover teen movies that, oh, she's so nice. Look how pretty she looks. Oh, the nice boy's taken to the prom, you know, but Love Among the Stars is not going to turn out that well. And that's the difference between horror cinema and regular cinema. Had this been a regular movie, it would have ended nicely because makeover movies do. But in horror movies, if you're going to take in The Outsider and turn that, that doesn't end well. And right. Sue Snell is punished for being nice mm-hmm. to The Outsider. Yeah. And, and we have to mention that uh, years ago we won a Halloween costume <laughs> contest by dressing up as Carrie and Tommy. Yes, we did. If we can dig up that picture, we'll put it on the blog. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that went over well. But and then think about the people that are in this movie: John Travolta, yep. of course, Nancy Allen because she was either married or or she was dating dating Brian De Palma. Edie McClure right. was one of the girls. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Betty Buckley. Oh, yeah. Who's smoking. the chain smoking. That is so great. <laughs> chain smoking uh, school counselor or yeah. teacher. And they're in the office there. And that principal keeps calling her Cassie. <laughs> and then she flips the uh, the, cig- the ashtray. I mean, so many of those those elements are so 70s. So 70s. <laughs> and they're just, it's hilarious to work, to, wa- uh, to watch today. But, but and the remake, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons I think the remake didn't work was that it, it lost that time capsule. It did. There were a few reasons. I mean, we disagree a little bit on that. I, th- I think the remake was a little better than you do. Yeah, I didn't like it at but all. But it, it does come back to, as much as we both like Chloe Grace Moretz, she was just too pretty. And she was miscast. It was hard she was to very en- envision her as being unpopular yeah. and, and a freak, whereas right. Sissy Spacek, it was not. You no. believed it. Yeah, you did. Uh, and again, as great as Julianne Moore is as an actress... She played, you know, the Carrie's mom in the in the remake. She's and one it, of the greatest actresses she's ever. Great, but yeah, but Piper, Laurie, Piper Laurie. You were terrified of Piper Laurie. Just reached a, oh, yeah. a, a crazy vibe that mm-hmm. you couldn't believe it. So, yeah. so um, yeah, definitely a classic. It comes in at number three on our uh, top five of the seventies. Carrie from seventy six, and whoo, here we go with the top two because we came to blows almost. We did for this one, and we're going to need you to chime in about who was right because um, <laughs> for number two, it's Hope's favorite. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is the movie that is just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Yeah, Toby Hooper's 1974 classic. This, uh, yeah, this, and I, I sort of have the feeling not that many people are going to sort of side with me, but this would be my number one. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is in my top five all time, not just horror movies, anything. My top five all time favorite movies. I love it so much. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And, you know, it starts, one of the reasons that it's so good is because you as an audience member are not safe. And Toby Hooper makes that clear. He abandons everything that that you don't even realize you've come to rely on to let you know scares are coming. This is filmed in broad daylight. There is basically no score. There's no shadows. There's no lurking anything to sort Red of herrings. prepare you of what's going to happen. And one of my favorite things, Franklin, Franklin Hardesty, right? Sally Hardesty's brother, Franklin, whiny and in a wheelchair and completely wildly unlikable in the 1970s in particular there were a ton of horror movies where the protagonist was in one way or another handicapped 
And that made them seem more vulnerable. So it built tensions. But you knew that that person would overcome in the end. You knew they would. <laughs> not here. <laughs> not not Franklin. Not Franklin. So, in, in, you know, just, just, you know, scene after scene after scene after scene, Toby Hooper clarifies for you, you have no idea what's going to happen. Right. And what does happen will be ugly. Yep. And it works so well. And, um, I mean, just from the get-go. I mean, come on, that hitchhiker. Oh, my God. When you get the hit, you know... You sh- people, you should have turned around right then because that <laughs> this is weird. But no, you're so right. There's a once you establish that uh, feeling in the audience that oh yeah, you know, I, and, I and have no may, idea. And for a lot of people, it might even be self conscious. They don't realize all those no, things you just said sure. about the history of horror movies. But they just they, know they that just they, feel unsafe. Exactly, I'm unsafe. This exactly. filmmaker is yeah. Uh, Edwin Neal, by the way, is a hitchhiker, and and uh-huh. and uh, uh, Leatherface gets a lot of love, and rightfully so. And Gunnar Hansen was Leatherface in the original; he was magnificent. But Edwin Neal, that's when that's the one to me. He was so creepy and great. Woo. He was so great. Um, and then the, the dinner scene. Oh yeah, that's that's one of my favorite horror scenes ever. And hang uh, me on a hook. Uh, <laughs> and then, yeah. <laughs> and when he comes, you know when he. When uh, Leatherface just appears behind that door, yeah. a, this hulking, lurking figure, and just comes comes running out and grabs, and just it's all so shocking and yeah. and uh, you know sparse and and you know you just feel terrified, terrified, Horrified. yeah, and out in the middle of the boonies, yeah, um, yeah, boy, it's it's just a, such a primal type of fear, you know, a guy in a mask and he's got these hooks and and meat cleavers and chainsaws and and yeah, it's uh, it's it still works. Today. It does. And speaking of Gunnar Hansen, we have, that's another picture oh. we have to dig up. You got your picture. We <laughs> I got did. to meet Gunnar Hansen and, and Marilyn Burns, who sadly Sally passed Hardesty. away oh, what, last, year? last year. Last she year, did. she did. Yeah. Passed away last year. But you got to get a picture with both of them, and yeah. uh, they were very cool. Very oh nice. Oh my God, they were so they were so nice. And, and it's funny time. we can find that picture because my face is I could not possibly. <laughs> oh my God. So giddy. And wasn't Gunnar Hansen at the time? He was talking about that he, he was, was writing, writing a yeah, book. Yeah, he was. Did he I was ever, writing a book. We haven't now? heard anything. Because you put yourself on the mailing I list. I did. I'll buy that book. Exactly. So Yeah, I remember he said, he's like, I'm not sure who the audience is for this book. I'm like, I am, I the am the here. audience for this yeah, book. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that one, that was one definitely with, with staying power. And, 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 uh, and it does have staying power, but one of the reasons it was so huge when it came out, in very much sort of the way Blair Witch managed, they, they said, based on a true story, which is it's very, very loosely, they, they pulled a couple of facts from the life of Ed Gein. It's yeah. one of a, just like Psycho, it's one of a thousand movies that are based loosely on the life of Ed Gein. And all, he just, he made furniture out of human bone. So it's really only that, the grave robbery part of it. it he wasn't a chainsaw massacreist or a cannibal or anything like that. But they used that, mm-hmm. based on a true story. And, um, uh, and, and then the footage is so home movie-like yeah. that it just fed an imagination that uh, 1974 at the time, nothing else had ever been like that. It had come out like that. And, of course, since then, a billion. And, of course, I think you can sort of blame the found footage a little bit on that because of just the style. Obviously, nobody's filming, but just the style that he used. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but, you know, at the time, it was... Uh, yeah, it was an event. People were just <laughs> amazed and horrified. Although I think it's safe to say, perhaps not as much as they were by our number one film. You probably guessed it from 1973, The Exorcist. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that. The sour is mine. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intense. 
The power of Christ compels you. What else really needs to be said about The Exorcist? I, I can remember when it came out in 73, I'd have been nine years old about. And certainly I didn't see it in the theater, but I remember walking to school with my friends and we talked about it because we were, we were already hearing the stories most of them probably not true. Oh, people were just passing out yeah. in the aisles. They were vomiting. They had to call the squad yep. because of so many things that were, were on the screen. We think about that now, and I can see why that sort of legend grew. Because even watching it today, yeah. I see some of those scenes, and I thought, this came out in 19-freaking-73. <laughs> really? Yeah. Just some shocking stuff, even by today's standards. Right. That that in nineteen seventy three you've got this twelve year old girl girl saying those things right. and doing those things with a crucifix and looking like that. Yeah. And wow. Yeah. Just shocking. But but beyond a shock level, it just works so well uh as as a as a horror film, as a scary movie. Um and, and part of it a lot of it starts in, in two things from the beginning. It's a very slow build. Yeah, which nobody uh, does anymore. By today's standard. No. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. She does. goes through all those tests. She comes down. She well, and pe- they start in Iraq. Pees on the rug. Yeah. It's- yeah, they start in Iraq. And that's and that's another point that you've made a couple of a couple of times. And it's it's very well taken. Is that how they start wide and get very, yeah. very focused. Yeah, because yeah, the film, of course, starts in Iraq. Uh, uh, Marin is out there doing some archaeological digs, and the, the, it's big landscape shots. You're outdoors. The, everybody looks small because you've got so much of the landscape. And then they move to Georgetown, and they bring it in a little bit. And you've got people walking around. You still have a full shot, but, you, but it, it's closed in. And then there's all the medical testing, and then it's closed in even farther. And then you're in her bedroom, just and it's bedroom. tiny. Yep. It's just you and three or four other people in this bedroom mm-hmm. trapped. And it's, I mean, Friedkin is a genius. Yeah. And there are a thousand ways in which we can point to that in this film. But I love that, the way it's, it opens up, and then it, it just gets closer until you're trapped in that room with the devil. That's funny you say that because... Because we got to interview uh, Linda Blair uh, a couple of years ago. And she's a big dog fan. She is. She has. <laughs> she's very much into dog and animal rights, and God bless her. Uh, so it was hard to get her to talk really about this movie. She wanted to talk about her her uh, her charity, which is fine. But I did ask her about that, about the reputation that uh, William Friedkin had for being. Uh, Difficult, yeah. And she just laughed, and she said, "Well, he's a genius, isn't he?" So <laughs> that kind of that kind of told a lot. But she has obviously great uh, memories of that, and it's you really can't downplay how good she was. No, when you think about that, she was twelve yeah. years old, and what they put her through, and and I know it wasn't her voice, and we'll get to that because the voice uh, is is so oh, so well yeah. done. But still, think about that performance, uh, Academy Award nominated, and mm-hmm. and very deserving. Mm-hmm. Um, is just fantastic. Uh, all the performances. Yeah. You know, Ma- Max von Sydow's <gasps> Father Marin. It's crazy. He was 44 years old. Isn't that funny? When he was in Shutter Island a few years ago, I remember thinking to myself, how old must he be? He's been an old man <laughs> yeah. since 1973. No, he was 44. It was the makeup. And, and uh, from what I read, Dick Smith, the makeup guru, mm-hmm. did oh, yeah, his makeup. Sure. Very well oh, done. Very, very well. Because you never think to yourself, so it's a guy yeah. in old person makeup. You yeah. never think that. You just but think, oh, it's just old man. All that great makeup they did on, on, on Linda Blair. Oh, and my. The, yeah, the voice was an actress named Mercedes McCambridge. How perfect was oh, she? Did from what you read, all sorts of things like drinking whiskey and chain smoking and drinking, eating raw eggs yeah. to get her voice like that. Just perfect. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so many great things about the movie. Uh, one of my favorite little quick, weird pieces of trivia, though, is that Max von Sydow has now, in the course of his career, played the ex- an exorcist, of course, also Jesus Christ, also Satan. So, of course, he's been around a long time, so you get a lot of opportunities, but I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, but it's it's such a classic even today, and you see the director's cut now, and 
And you add the things like the spider walk down the stairs, which apparently Friedkin, when they filmed it, thought that, A, it was too much too soon. Right. Because we talked about it's a slow build Mm -hmm. and it works. Mm -hmm. And also, at the time, in 73, he didn't feel he could hide the wires well enough. Right. Of course, today, CGI done. But they'd had a contortionist do it with wires and harnesses, and he didn't feel that you could get those wires out of the out of the uh, screen out of the shot but of course now you can see it on the director's cut and it's very shocking it is and, and you can see he kind of has a point it comes on early and it's such a jolt mm-hmm. before you're really ready for for some of those uh, some of those jolts that come later but it works and it's it's such a such a great movie not only because some movies work on a shock value level and only on a shock value right. level and this which one means doesn't. once you've seen it once you don't need to see it right. again because it's no longer shocking and that's not the case of this movie no. it is it is effective every time you see it yeah uh so uh, boy the exorcist from 1973 so what do you think i mean would that be your number one i know for a lot of people it would but maybe not maybe you're voting uh with hope for texas chainsaw Massacre. or maybe so. you're just irritated that we left off things like suspiria or don't look now or the omen or black christmas or the hills have eyes <laughs> uh dawn of the dead blackula yeah. you know i love blackula yeah. we just want i just want to acknowledge we know how many great movies we, we loved up the 70s is my favorite decade of horror film it's I, I love all of them good bad and ugly i love all the horror films out of the 70s they just had their own flavor they were so raw and new and groundbreaking yeah. um and yeah and turned out some of the greatest directors of the genre so yeah so let us know your thoughts uh, on twitter obviously we love to keep the conversation going uh, it's a lot of fun we're at mad wolf that's m-a-d-d-w-o-l-f we also you know what the exorcist speaking of which we want to give a quick plug because our next live event we're going to show the exorcist yeah. and it's going to be our first double feature for the live fun. front club we're going to pair The Exorcist with The Conjuring. Yeah. How fun is that? Yeah. Because so. they're, they're both obviously great movies, but they're both based on, supposedly based on true events. And they're both uh, uh, possession movies, yeah. and they're both movies that you want to see on a big screen. Yeah. They just look great. You know, because, they're big, dark, darkened yeah. theater movies to watch. So, and If you didn't know it, actually, the, um, the actor who played Father Dyer mm-hmm. in, in The Exorcist was an actual... Priest, priest mm-hmm. and has said, I guess, that 80%, his, his estimation was 80% of the events in The Exorcist are true. Right. From the possession of a young boy. Right, um, so that'd be the biggest difference. Yeah, so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, great double feature. We look forward to that and um, look forward to your comments. So keep them coming. You can also always comment on the Golden Spiral Media voice feedback line. That's 304 304- Eight three seven two two seven eight. Or you can, you know, you can you can leave a, a voice feedback right there on the blog on yeah. uh, Golden Spiral Media. Um, next week, we're actually going to sort of break. Uh, we're going to take a break from our decades countdown because we get a chance. We're not going to go right to your favorite decade ever, the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> play some Duran Duran in the background. Can we? Can we play Duran Duran? <laughs> no, this is fun because we're looking forward to some some movies coming out, especially one that we're going to see in a couple of days. Yeah, we're going to watch It Follows actually tomorrow morning. And then uh, we're going to talk about that and also the other four or five movies that we are most excited, horror films we're most excited to see this year. So that's what we're going to do next week. And then we'll go back uh, to the 80s the following week. So fun. So hopefully uh, you'll be there as always. I am George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Fright Club podcast. And until next time. Stay frightful, my friends.